0: compassion is really um, not just understanding what someone's going through, but actually doing something about it. So it's what we also call pro-social behavior, um, taking an action to help someone. And we see a different set of neural regions active in compassion. So we see um, regions that are involved in reward processing. So the basal ganglia reward system, And so there seems to be a reward component for actually doing something to help other people.
1: Hi, my name is Anita Novak, and I'm the author of this book. Welcome to season 12 of Purposeful Empathy, a show that is dedicated to amplifying the voices of people from across the globe who understand that the world needs more empathy and are doing something about it. Thanks for watching, enjoy the show. Welcome to a new episode of Purposeful Empathy. Today, I am joined by Dr. Lisa Aziz Zadeh, who is a professor at the Brain and Creativity Institute at the Department of Psychology and the Chan Division of Occupational Science and Occupational Therapy at the University of Southern California. She is also the director of the USC Center of Neuroscience of Embodied Cognition, Lisa's research center utilizes behavioral and neuroimaging methodologies to better understand how rudimentary sensory motor systems in the brain may underlie higher cognitive processing, such as language, social cognition, empathy, and creativity. Her current research also includes understanding how the gut-brain axis modulates behavior. This research includes both neurotypical populations as as well as those Uh, with Autism Spectrum Disorder, Developmental Coordination Disorder, Stroke, and other acquired and developmental neural differences. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so delighted because I was actually saying just as before we hit record that you're the first of, of many, I'm hoping, um, neuroscientists um, that are in the female category of research. So it's great to have you on the show. Um, and I think straight out of the gates, what I'd love to ask you from your research background perspective, if you could share the difference between the words like sympathy, compassion, and empathy. I know what, what how I differentiate them, but I wonder if you could share your thoughts.
0: Sure. Um, okay, so let's start with sympathy. So sympathy is um, what we call perspective taking. So cognitively, if I want to think about what you're thinking about, That's what we what we call sympathy. So my best example of this is in a couple. A lot of times you'll have a dispute with your partner and um, your partner will tell you why they're upset with you. And you'll be like, "Okay, well, I guess I could try to understand why you're feeling that way. I wouldn't exactly feel like that if it happened to me, but I guess I could sort of understand why you're so upset. Right. So we call that sympathy where it's like you're taking someone's perspective from a really cognitive perspective. Um, You're using deductive reasoning, you're using your prefrontal cortex um, and brain regions that are associated with what we call the mentalizing network. You're thinking about what someone else is thinking about. On the other hand, empathy is more emotional resonance. So I feel what you feel. So if I see you fall down and, you know, get a bruise on your foot, I feel like it's I can feel what it feels like for you to feel that. <laughs> so it's this emotional sharing, I share your emotions. Um, and in the brain, we see that in another set of regions. So we see them in emotion related brain regions like the insula, we see it in the inferior frontal gyrus. Um, and it's kind of like this mirroring, I mirror what you're, what you're experiencing. And I share them on the brain regions as if I were doing it myself. It was as if it was happening to me. So we also call it simulating someone else's experience. Now, compassion is different from both of those, in that compassion is really um, not just understanding what someone's going through, but actually doing something about it. So it's what we also call pro social behavior, um, taking an action to help someone. And we see a different set of neural regions active in compassion. So we see um, regions that are involved in reward processing. So the basal ganglia reward system. And so there seems to be a reward component for actually doing something to help other people. So neuronally, these are three completely different um, networks and we think cognitively and emotionally they are also.
1: So isn't there something known as cognitive empathy, though, that sort of uh, is is similar to the the first uh, sympathy thing that you were talking about? Exactly.
0: Exactly. So cognitive empathy and sympathy um, are basically synonyms.
1: Okay, got it, got it, got it. And so the mirror neuron system is actually what activates the empathy like the affect of empathy, right? So That's right,
0: affective empathy or what we're calling here um emotion resonance or simulation of other people's experiences. Right.
1: Got it. And so could you describe sort of the neural differences between the three? I'd be really curious to know about the science of it.
0: Right. So um for cognitive empathy or sympathy, um, we see the prefrontal cortex and the temporal parietal junction active. For um empathy or emotion resonance, we see these mirroring regions active. Um, so in the motion related brain regions, like the insula in the mirror neuron regions, like the inferior frontal gyrus. Um, and for compassion, we see um, the reward circuits active. So the basal ganglia
1: mm-hmm. uh, dopamine pathways. So the research that you've done, um, I'd be curious to dig a little bit deeper, especially the new research that we were talking about, um, especially as it relates to empathy and creativity. So what's some of your research?
0: Right. So we've done a lot of work in autism, trying to understand what goes on in autism, um, in emotion and empathy networks. Uh, and what we find is actually really, uh, interesting and complicated. So we find that actually in autism, a lot of people think um, in autism, there's a lot of differences in socio-emotional processing. And there are, but they're not necessarily in the patterns that you would expect. So there does seem to be lower uh, cognitive empathy, but there's actually increased personal distress, which is a component of emotional empathy. So they actually are feeling what other people feel even more strongly than typically developing people.
1: Mm.
0: Um, And then we find that this actually correlates not so much with autism per se, but with alexithymia. And alexithymia is the feeling of not being able to describe your emotions. It's something that you see in the typical population, but it is stronger, it's more represented in the autism population. So it's alexithymia that's driving these empathy differences, actually, and not um, autism per se, which is pretty interesting.
1: So alexithymia, or alexithymia, if I'm mistaking the pronunciation, came onto my radar uh, while I was writing the book because I understand that a lot of people who suffer from traumatic brain injuries, whether it's in sports or a car accident or something, will develop alexithymia. And my understanding is that that creates a lot of difficulty within relationships because people are not able to, as you said, discern how they're feeling, but also discern how other people are feeling so it's sort of like this reduced um, empathy or uh, cognitive empathy. Um, Could you speak more to this disorder and sort of unpack what it's all about because it's it's fairly new I think to me I don't think I've heard it much in sort of the general discourse.
0: Right so alexithymia. Um, As you said, it's an inability to talk about your emotions. Now, where it's actually stemming from, we still don't really know. So some people think of it as an interoception deficit. So an inability to understand what's going on with inside your body. So an inability to talk about your heartbeat racing, your stomach feeling queasy. And we know from a neuroscience perspective that all of those information from your internal organs actually contribute to emotion processing. Um, so it might be part, partly part of this kind of interoception deficit. Another theory that was popular by um, my old mentor, Iran Zeidel, was that alexithymia was a dissociation between the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere. Mm. So the idea that the right hemisphere is your emotional hemisphere, the left hemisphere is your language processing hemisphere. And there's some disconnectivity between them so that the emotion regions aren't talking to the talking regions and therefore you can't talk about your emotions does that make sense
1: yeah so meaning to say that they might actually have um the capacity to discern that they are feeling a certain way but they might not be able to actually articulate it
0: exactly exactly that's right um and there's evidence there's evidence for both so it could also be a combination right it doesn't have to be one or the other
1: Right. Okay. Cause another part of the research that I discovered, uh, when I was, was studying sort of like the neuroscience of empathy is that when we are in empathic resonance with someone and feeling connected, um, the pleasure and reward centers of our brain light up the same way that they do like eating chocolate cake or being high on psychedelics. That's what I have, have read. Is that true?
0: So we find that for, or not just me, other people have found that also for, um, compassion. So when you're actually doing something to help someone else, but not necessarily for other aspects of empathy that we've talked about. So sympathy or emotion resonance.
1: Ah, so it's the act of being of like acting on that empathy in a pro-social way that actually lights up the pleasure reward centers.
0: Right. So as we talked about for personal distress, which is this kind of like extreme version of sharing someone's emotion, it's not necessarily a positive thing, right? It could actually inhibit you doing pro-social behavior because you feel so much what other people are feeling and you might even want to back away from the situation because it's so distressing. Right. So so just emotion resonance doesn't get you to pro-social behavior if that's the goal which I would think is probably the goal.
1: Right. And so what are you hearing about um, the people who describe themselves as highly sensitive people or empaths, where they feel like they're sponges to the energy in the room or the feelings that they're picking up off of other people? Has has your research center done anything around that?
0: Um. So... So in some, some ways, the autistic community can be an example of this because they are showing this increased emotional resonance with other people. um. And so, you know, I, I think that's a special case of it because it does lead to socio-emotional difficulties.
1: Hmm.
0: Um, and so there's a difficulty with social relationships because of that. And it might be because they feel overwhelmed with these kinds of sharing of other people's emotions, which I think can translate to the typical population also. So we know from um, a lot of literature in during the pandemic in the nurse population that um, there was this overload of uh, what I think the best term for it is um, pers- personal distress and watching other people's distress and feeling overwhelmed by it, right? Um, which led to burnout and all sorts of other negative things. So feeling too much someone else's emotions is not necessarily a positive thing. It's a positive thing if you have a deficit in it and you wanna increase it. But if you're you know, a typical person, then you really wanna to get to compassion instead of just feeling what the other person is feeling. Right. So one of the articles I read was actually talking about how you could do more compassion training in the medical field rather than emotion training empathic training right so getting people to not necessarily feel what the other person is feeling but just feel it and move on and do something to help them right to help them categorize
1: that less as emotion resonance and more as compassion Hey there, I don't mean to interrupt a fabulous conversation. I just want to draw your attention to the fact that there are so many other great conversations on my YouTube channel, over 120 episodes with already 25,000 views, completely organic. Thanks to you, my listeners, viewers, watchers, please subscribe. The world needs more empathy and you have a role to play. On that note, um, are there predictors of being a bystander versus being a helper? I imagine that there are. So what are some of the main predictors?
0: Right, okay, so this is a great question. Uh, So a lot of, so I've done a lot of work on autism, but we've also done a lot of work on typically developing people. And we've tried to look at how um, to understand people who are similar to you, but also people who are not similar to you. So we've worked with um, different kinds of populations. We've had, people who are, you know, um, typically bodied, looking at people who have amputations and trying to understand how they process limbs that you know they don't have, and vice versa, how people with amputations process limbs they don't have, especially like pain in limbs that they don't have. Um, and things like that. So we've also looked at social groups, so um, Jews looking at neo-nazis in pain, Right, so how would they process pain for someone that they hate? You know, an enemy group. Um, anyway, so all of this leads me to say that we do seem to process the pain of other people who are dissimilar to us, um, but we do it dif- differently than we do um, with the networks we discussed before. So, if I'm trying to process the pain of someone who's different from me, I might start to use not just my empathy network but in addition use um, my sympathy network, my mentalizing network to do it in a deductive way rather than just sharing the emotions of someone who's so dissimilar to me. Mm -hmm. Now, if you don't have um, these systems active that often can lead to dehumanization. Um, So that's one of the the current topics that my lab is looking at. but I want to come back to your question about a bystander versus a helper. Um, one of the books that I read recently is um by Oliner and Oliner. Are you familiar with it? It's called The Altruistic Personality. Um, and he did probably one of the best and largest um, studies on bystanders versus helpers in um during World War II in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um And what he found was that there's three predictors of being a helper versus a bystander. One is that you have these expansive social groups. So growing up, you grew up with a lot of different people from different cultures in your social group. Um, Two is a sense of agency. So you feel that you're in control of uh, what happens in the world. You have something to do with what happens. You're not very fatalistic. So a lot of times you'll hear people say things like, "Oh, the war in Ukraine it's horrible, but like what could I do?" Mm-hmm. right And yet there's people you know I have a neighbor who's housing immigrants in her in her um, extra room right so there are things we all could do mm-hmm. and so this sense of agency is a really important component. and then the third one, and I think this is probably the best predictor from his data is a habit of helping behavior. Mm-hmm. So you can think of compassion almost like a muscle, right? That you have to create a habit for. Um, and it, I think it should be really, I think this is, goes very well with the title of your podcast. It has to be purposeful, right? So if you have kids, especially, you have to create situations where they are practicing this muscle and you're taking them to do things that are compassionate. So the people who were helpers in World War II had this kind of habit behavior where... They were just constantly doing, like their, their neighbor was sick, they would take something to, you know, some food over there. Um, they had another neighbor or friend who was sick. They would go visit them in the hospital, right? So they were just constantly doing things like this and it was part of their habit behavior. And we know in times of stress, like a war situation, we can't rely on our prefrontal cortex or rationality, right? We just go back to our habit behavior. And this is probably why this was the best predictor of um, helping behavior, this kind of strong, compassionate habits that these people had learned.
1: Well, it's so interesting because my own PhD research was social entrepreneurs asking them, why do they do the work that they do? I did a big analysis of sort of uh, a narrative analysis of their lives, and they were working on really different problems from different parts of the world, at small scale, at fully funded global scale, and one of the things that I found, without uh, exception, was that they had service modeled in their family, like this idea of giving back as a habit, as a value. So that kind of very much correlates. So that's that's super interesting. Um, I'm going to write down the name of the book and include it in the in the um, uh, notes of this conversation. Could you repeat the name of the the researcher? Um, Olinar and Oliner. They're a couple. Oliner and Olenar, beautiful, we'll look that up, thank you. Um, What are the main predictors of liking others and dehumanizing them since we're on this topic of predictors?
0: Yeah, so um, this is a work by uh, Susan Frisk. And what she finds is that um, two of the best predictors are uh, feelings of warmth and feelings of competence. So the more you feel like um, a social group is very warm, you're more likely to like them, but also how competent they are. So it kind of is like a X and a Y on a graph. So you can think of the middle class as a group that a lot of people think of as both warm and competent. Um, Rich people would be like very competent, but not very warm, right? So that kind of is associated with feelings of envy. Mm. whereas the middle class is associated with feelings of pride.
1: Mm.
0: And then you get, um, on the other side, so um, low competence with high warmth, you get groups like um, the disabled or the elderly, Mm. um, and that's associated with feelings of pity. Mm. And then in the low, low, low uh, competence, low warmth, you get groups like um, the homeless or drug users. Mm. And that's usually... um, groups that are naturally dehumanized, unfortunately, um, and it's feelings of disgust that are associated.
1: Mm. So we have to work really hard to overcome those. So what do you suppose, you've talked about compassion training as opposed to empathy training. So what can people do in their day-to-day lives if they wanna become more empathic, more compassionate um, on purpose? Right, so
0: I think, One of the things that we found and we're currently conducting a study to verify this is just exposure, right? So uh, a lot of times these groups that are in the low, low category are groups that were naturally avert our eyes when we come across them, we don't often engage with at all. And if we can actually reverse that and, you know, spend time in a soup kitchen or spend time talking to um, people in this group, or even just watch more videos, you know, if they're more more um, represented in media um, and can tell their own stories. So you have some kind of perspective on how they got to where they got to. um, I think all of that would be helpful. So really just spending time doing things with them. And it's really just all humanizing, right? Activities.
1: Mm -hmm. And as the mom of three children, as I've discovered in the pre-conversation, <laughs> do you have any um, examples or stories of practices either from your own family or from, from your research um, that is a good habit to have with children?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. So um, it's interesting because I think a lot of times we know we wanna do these kind of things with our kids but we don't even know where to start, you know, like what, what's appropriate for my kid, where can I do to, where can I take them to have this kind of training, right? And I moved from a public school recently to like the small Jewish school with my kids. Um, and in the public school, there they would have like, maybe like once a year events, you know, blood drives, things like that. Um, but in this school, it's really like part of the school. So every week there's all there's like, you know, the none of them are mandatory or very few of them are mandatory, but like here's a list every week of things that you could do. Mm. And I think that that's been really useful for us of just having like, oh, well this week there's, you know, you we can go like play with kids who have disabilities. Let's go let's go spend an hour on Sunday doing that. Mm-hmm. Right? Just having like access to opportunities that you could That are appropriate for children right i think
1: it's really useful yep well that's beautiful um okay final question lisa thank you so much for your time um i love asking my guests if they can think to a time in their own lives when they were on the receiving end of empathy now my take on empathy is um that empathy is the combination or the dual citizenship of affective and cognitive empathy. And I place the extra emphasis on the cognitive empathy because we can choose to be more empathic. And by choosing to be more empathic, ultimately, we are doing what sort of I think you're defining as compassion, which is like the acting on this pro social behavior. So if that's the backdrop to the question, can you share a time in your life when you were on the receiving end of that and what that meant for you?
0: Yeah, so um, I, you know, I saw in the notes that you sent me that you were going to ask me this question. So I was thinking about it. And one of the things I realized is that a lot of times, it's just a lot of small acts that, you know, they might not even seem like a big deal. But as the recipient, they're a really big deal. So, you know, things like when our water was shut down, uh, all of a sudden in our house, I mentioned it to the neighbor and she brought two jugs of water over, you know, like just it's not a big deal, but it actually was like it meant so much to us or the other the other week our refrigerator broke down and my neighbor kept um, our food for us for one week in her house and her refrigerator was our refrigerator, you know, and we could just like go over and pick something out. Um, You know, I think a lot of times it's really, especially as a a mom, when you're like overwhelmed with your kids and your kid has like all the stuff over her and the person next to you hands you a tissue, Mm. you know, Mm. (laughs) right. It's these small tasks. No judgment, with no judgment. (laughs) (laughs) With no judgment, exactly. Right. And it's like these small gestures, a lot of times that there, you know, it's handing over tissue, like what it, you know, it's so small and yet it's so like, I didn't even ask for it. You just saw that I needed that at this moment and you offered it like, that's, that's amazing, you know? And it just lightened my load for just even a little bit. Um, so I think, I think those small stories are sometimes as impactful as like the large, big ones of, you know, Someone donating a kidney. <laughs> I
1: I really do agree with you, and I love asking that question because I never know if I'm going to get the small stories or the big kidney. And I have interviewed somebody who's been a donor, so I, I I've I've spoken to the spectrum. And I think the for me the takeaway I love asking the question because it is my reminder, and then also the reminder to anybody who's listening or watching that it's accessible. It's available to us. It's ready to, like, if we just decide to turn up the volume on empathy and compassion in our life, how we will benefit. I think there's a lot of physiology, like evidence that's showing that we benefit and so do they. So why wouldn't we, right? Absolutely. 100%. Well, thank you so much, Lisa, for joining and thank you all for watching and listening. We'll see you next week at Purposeful Empathy. Thank you so much for watching an episode of Purposeful Empathy. If you enjoyed this conversation, subscribe to the channel and also consider picking up your copy of Purposeful Empathy. It's an invitation to dial up empathy in your life. The world needs more empathy. We need more empathy. What are you waiting for?